Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 is our text for tonight. And the message is entitled, Jesus, God's Son, and Gift. That's a mouthful. Um, something that is um, really uncomprehendable to us to its full end, and yet absolutely truth in every way, in every way whatsoever. And so, here Isaiah, in the midst of gloom and darkness, this is when he speaks out. When uh, at his time, all kinds of things were going on in the kingdom, and yet we look to our world today and we see... um, much darkness, much ability that would be okay would be going on today, but um, it's okay. Okay. but nevertheless, in the midst of gloom and doom and light, good times, bad times, God is never um, any different, and he doesn't alter things around, but he's very consistent in his message. And the amazing thing is that God uses the same instrument by which that he reaches the world. And that is the simplicity of the gospel. Those who have taken upon themselves to try to alter the gospel or to better it, if you will, or to modernize it. At times they do it ignorantly. At other times they do it willfully, knowing what they're doing. But they destroy and they dilute the message of the gospel. Isaiah the prophet, in our text here, gives to us three things regarding the Messiah that were prophetic. He says, 9 verse 6 through 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so Isaiah gives to us three things that are so incredibly from the prophetic standpoint because, as you know, prophecy is speaking forward something that hasn't happened yet and absolutely guaranteeing that it will happen exactly as is declared. And when it happens, it can be confirmed and verified by the very event itself that was predicted hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before its time. Here he gives us three things. The mystery of his birth, the beginning of verse 6. Second, the character of his kingdom in verse 7. And then you have the nature of his office there at the end of verse 6 there. So the mystery of his birth comes first. Notice the prophet Isaiah here prophesied, for unto us a child is born. The proclamation announced the birth of a child Focusing on this humanity of birth. The particular statement describes the normal process that God would use to accomplish this mystery. 
Everyone's familiar with the normal birth of a child after nine months. The particular statement describes this normal process, and the people notice to whom it is uh, addressed to would be the Jews. God chose the nation of Israel to represent him and to speak through and to direct and guide, to prepare um, to be the instrument for the Messiah to come. The pronoun us speaks of this Jewish nation. But at the same time, the pronoun us also encompasses the human race because way back in Genesis 12, 3, God said, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God, in his extreme misunderstood love from the worldly perspective, but very clear to the believer, in his loving compassion, he always included all of fallen mankind. But he began with a nation, and he tried to use that nation to give a picture and a representation of his love and grace, but they failed to a great extent, taking that badge as self-righteousness rather than to proclaim the righteousness of God that he um, would give to others if they trusted him. And the phrase for unto us refers to our good or advantage that would come to us, not to his own person, only, not only to Isaiah. And certainly it isn't for the good of God, because if you know that if, what could God gain from me? What good could he gain from you? It's, it's all one-sided at this point. Now, so Jewish and Gentile sinners, and that's the way God saw the world in the Old Testament, two categories. In the New Testament, you have Jew, Gentile, the church of God, which includes Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. And that's the way God looks at the world. God doesn't look at the world as black, white, brown, yellow, red. He doesn't look at the world as rich, poor. Those are all uh, classifications that man uses to manipulate man to get his done his uh, plan done whatever it is that that man is using that that's what we do we pit people against one another we divide people in categories but god looks upon the human race as fallen and in need of salvation for this reason we have this text that gives us a great savior jesus christ the promise regarding the birth of this child was not new it was all throughout the old testament it was first given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. And I've told you often that the woman has no um, seed in herself. She has the egg. It's the man that provides the seed. And the two come together. And all of a sudden, there's another human being that's made incredibly. The two human beings can come together. And the child is born so much of, of the father, so much of the mother. And that combination that as they grow... They, they, the personality traits, the genetic factors, the combinations of even generations past that have such a similarity and even the way they speak and the way they act and everything else of those genes, that's amazing. And that's why it's quite different to say our children than someone saying to another spouse, your children. God always intended children to bind you together, to make you greater as a commitment to life and to each other because you have so much in common and you've invested so much in your children. 
Today in our world, children are really a bother, a, 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 a liability. That's the way they're presented, but not before the eyes of God. Jacob prophesied about the time in Genesis 49.10 when the scepter would be taken away from Judah, when they, Israel didn't have the uh, power over death, and that's exactly what took place when Jesus was crucified. He had to go to Pilate. Micah said it would be in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Malachi spoke of his first and his second coming. So this prophetic aspect, this particular here, is nothing new. It's all over the New Testament, the Old Testament, and fulfilling the New. But Isaiah, the prophet, next prophesied, um, unto us a son is given. And here the proclamation focuses on, on the divinity of the child, not only human but divine. Um, the only begotten son of the father, uh, the son of his love, if you look at John 3.16. The combined statement describes the person of the mystery here, he's human and yet divine at the same time. Now, you and I understand each other to be human, but none of us believe we're divine. Though some would teach such things under philosophy and cultic practices, but the fact that you are going to eventually die proves that you're not divine. You are a created creature. You did not just happened to come to be by some accident or some chemical exchanges or some accident of, uh, of man. But God created you after his image, after his likeness. You have a body, soul, and spirit. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are an inferior trinity. The body will go back to the ground. My soul deals with um, the aspect of my intellect, my emotion, and my will. And the spirit is the real me. Once I'm born again, my spirit's alive. I worship God. The plural pronoun us is also, again, dealing with both Jewish and Gentile. The promise of divinity of this child, again, is found throughout the Old Testament. Each lamb was to be slain, and the blood, the blood was a token to be put on the horns of the altar for an atonement, a covering. Every animal sacrifice pictured the true Lamb of God to come. In John one twenty nine. Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. The one to fulfill all things, the true atonement of that blood, all other blood of animals that began in Genesis 3.21 was prophetic of Jesus Christ. It was just a covering. While the New Testament is at one minute, it made you one with God. It made you whiter than snow if you called upon him. It cleansed you from all sin. And if you know anything about the color red, it is the hardest color to paint over. You need three or four coats, and you better have a good primer underneath it. One coat of the blood of Jesus Christ will make you whiter than snow. Regardless of whatever's happened in your life, regardless of whatever you've committed, for he is the sin bearer of the world. 
Isaiah the prophet prophesied also about the Messiah to come that one day he would fulfill this exact prophecy, both human and divine. Matthew declared the fulfillment of this child and identified his name as Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Emmanuel, God with us. A baby that was nine months in the womb of Mary, just like you were and your children were in your womb, ladies. And then he came forth. He had an umbilical cord just like any other baby. And he grew up like anybody else, and yet he was God in the flesh. The process of God becoming man is given to us in many portions of Scripture. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God took on human flesh. Paul the Apostle describes it for us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. This says, being in the form of God. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself, what's called the kenosis. He emptied himself not of his uh, uh, deity, but of his glory. And he took on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself and was obedient to the death of the cross. And for that reason... A name has been given to him above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right now, he, he, he initiates his love that people would bow willfully by his grace and his love to acknowledge what he's done for them. When he returns the second time, it will not be voluntarily. It will be forceful. It will be for judgment. You as parents know that when you give your child a chance to repent or to confess or to admit whatever they've done, that you will be merciful and more lenient. But if you know what he's done, he still tries to cover it up, and you have to force that truth upon him, the punishment is much more severe. So to us, we are a teacher to ourselves, the lesser to the greater. If we function that way, how much more God, who is purer than the heavens, who cannot look upon sin with any sense of condonance. And every judgment he makes will be absolutely just because he cannot violate his holiness. You know, the chance of probability with prophecy increases with each condition in a prophecy. One prophecy with just four factors would make it to be one in 90 billion 823 million 680,000 to one. <laughs> Just one prophecy, four factors. You take the average prophecy, six to seven factors. Do you think it was coincidence that Jesus was born the way he was, lived the way he did, died the way he did, and rose from the dead, and we're just going to write it off as coincidence? Or that he was really, really lucky? <laughs> Many of those prophecies while he was still hanging on the cross. Now, if he fulfilled over 300 in his first coming, 
What would possess you or I to believe that he's not going to fulfill the rest of them, including the second coming? You know God can't lie, right? You and I can and do, (laughs) but not him. He's a man of his word. There have been always, there has always been those who believe that Jesus is a mere man. And they're willing to go along that he's a carpenter, a good carpenter, the son of Mary. But uh, they have a difficult time that he is God. Many of them even um, step out of their league and say, well, it never says that in the Bible. Well, that's a complete lie. It's all over the place. Anybody who tells you non-truths that are so insulting to the word of God tells you one thing. They have never read the word of God. What they're doing is repeating the same lie that's been told to them without looking it up themselves. And our society is good for that. You see, there's been a process in our entire nation for the past 60-some years or so to dummy down American and critical thinking through education. And so people are being taught, and they have been indoctrinated to be quacking ducks and just to repeat things and to believe anything so they can be controlled. Jesus wants you to think clearly. He challenges you to search the Scriptures to find out if he is who he said he is. He wants you to look, to think, to examine the scriptures. And if you do that honestly, he will show you who he is. And you will have to make that evaluation all on your own, not because someone else says this. The truth of the matter is that if Jesus is uh, not God, he can't be good, he can't be moral, he can't be ethical, he has to be an imposter. And the greatest liar. Listen to First um, Timothy three sixteen says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, believed and received up to glory. Right here, he just described again Philippians chapter two verse five through eleven. God was in heaven. He emptied his throne. He divested himself. He came down, served, washed feet, died, rose from the dead. He returned up to his glory, sitting at the right hand of the Father. What king ever abandoned his throne for his people? What king ever died for the worst of mankind? And what king ever raised himself from the dead? Buddha still in the grave. Krishna. Gandhi. And Allah is not Jesus. He's not our God of the Bible. Don't confuse them. Get the Bible dictionary. (laughs) Not the deceptive dictionary of the world. You see, the message of God's good news is the gospel that is an invitation to all. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you don't know Jesus Christ, 
This evening, he's addressing you. He wants to talk to you directly. He wants to make himself known to you. He gave himself a ransom for you. He um, came to die for you. He became sin for you. Second Corinthians 5.21 Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he paid that price for us. The indescribable gift of God to us in Second Corinthians 9.15. There's no words or price to put on him. The mystery to be saved is revealed and resolved by the Holy Spirit of God. As um, he offers it to us by grace through faith in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Though it wasn't cheap, he offers it to us simply if we believe what he did for us. No amount of work, no amount of money can merit it. But if we believe the revelation of God that he became sin for me and that he paid the price for my sin, that he is able to forgive me my sin and to give me eternal life, and I call upon his name, he will do exactly that. And he's done it in such a way by grace through faith that no one can ever boast. No one can ever say, I deserved heaven more than that person. I was able to, you know... I'll get in on my own. Nothing. No one can ever say that. The plan of salvation is summed up at the cross where Jesus has two thieves crucified with him. Neither one of them deserve heaven. They both deserve hell. One chose to go to heaven. The other one chose to go to hell. There you have the gospel. And that is what has been going on for 2,000 years. People have been choosing to go to heaven or to hell if they believe who Jesus is. The one who chose to go to heaven said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. That man made the most important choice of his life because <laughs> it affected his eternity. The mystery of his birth is revealed by God. You see, no man could have come up with this. No man could know this that Isaiah is saying. God revealed this to Isaiah. But notice, second, we have the character of his kingdom in verse 6 there and 7. Uh, Isaiah prophesied the government would be upon his shoulders. Um, the suffering Messiah would be uh, in total control, even though things seemed to be out of his control. Um, specifics of the government being upon his shoulder. Um, symbolic here of master state who had a rod or a key laid upon their shoulders representing honor and majesty and honor and authority uh, over their task to govern. The decree to have a census by Caesar was God's doing in Luke chapter 2. God's in control. I don't know where you are or what's going on in your life, but you may be going through a very difficult time, maybe in a marriage, maybe with your children, maybe there's an illness, whatever it may be. But God's not ignorant to it. And um, God will use that to draw you to himself, to meet your need. So whether you are going through something or whether you are looking to the best of days, either way, God is here to reveal himself of your need of him. Because 
without the forgiveness of sins, without handling that debt before we leave, before I give up my last breath, um, I'm in a very difficult situation if I die in my sin. In fact, Jesus, um, I've told you often, spoke more about hell than he ever did about heaven because hell is a real place. And I know it's not popular with people, but that's the gospel. What are you going to do about it? And everyone there is a true believer, but they can't have a second opportunity. So, while you're alive, you have great opportunity. The line you have not crossed. You give up your last breath, then you've crossed that line. And now salvation is impossible. And so, if you don't know Jesus, he's speaking to you. Very, very directly, I guarantee you. Jesus spoke in the synagogue in Luke 4, as you know, and after he picked up the, they handed him the book of Isaiah, he quoted from there the first coming. He closed it in the middle of the verse, handed it back, said, In your hearing, these things are fulfilled. They tried to throw him over the cliff. He just walked right through because God was in control. How often they tried to destroy Jesus or take him, they didn't. God's in control. The triumphal entry of Zechariah 9.9 and Matthew 21 and Luke also 19 as he came in as a triumphal Messiah. But really, uh, it didn't seem to be according to man's perspective because a few days later, the people that were cheering him were yelling, crucify him. Men or women are very fickle. If uh, they get what they want and people are giving them what they want, oh, they cheer them on, they vote them in, they just give them a hug, but you just have them deny them what they want. And all of a sudden they say, crucify him. (laughs) And these are the individuals that Jesus died for. People like you and I. That's why his love is so different than our love. The rest, the trial, the sentence, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all was under God's control. Every bit of it. The reigning Messiah rules in the heart of his people. If you're born again, you're part of the church, so he rules over your life. You submit to him willfully. He doesn't force you in any way. Even as a Christian, you have a free will to do as you will. And yet in submission to him, I find the greatest happiness and joy and the greatest fulfillment and the greatest peace. Because once we've come to know Jesus Christ, we know too much. You know, as you grew up as a child, when you were in your father's home and your mom, when you were obedient and things were cool, everybody was happy, peaceful, joking around. But if you were in trouble and you did things that you weren't supposed to, even if your parents didn't know, you knew. And you were. (laughs) That's what sin does. That's what guilt does. It destroys our peace. It destroys our ability to enjoy life. And that's why Jesus came to be able to remove that from us so that we can live abundantly. And so... Jesus, as reigning Messiah, he, um, he, he doesn't force himself upon anybody. He's a perfect gentleman. One day he will rule in the kingdom age when he comes with his bride and says, but right now we're in the age of grace. He's calling people out to himself. And I'm amazed that we still have this year. He's given us one more year 
God knows if he, he calls it next year. I have no idea. No man knows the day or the hour. Yet as we look at the world, we look at all that's going on, we can see that things are getting difficult. Not only in America. It's just hitting us now, but the rest of the world has been there for a long time. But uh, so the situations at large, are, it's not a national problem. It's not a regional problem. It's a worldwide problem, just like the Bible says it would be in the last days. The Bible predicted about a one-world ruler, one-world bank, a one-world food, one, all kinds of famines, everything. God predicted all this. He gave the vision to Nebuchadnezzar from the head of Golan down to the ten toes of iron and clay. Things before they happen, so when they happen, you know that God spoke them. But notice also Isaiah here prophesied of the increase of his government and peace, there would be no end. So his government, unlike man's, will be progressive but eternal. Every empire of the world has come to an end. Rome reigned long, probably the longest of all. And yet, it fell apart from within. His kingdom will never end. God told Abraham at his calling that, um, again, he would bless um, all the families of the earth. That doesn't happen automatically. It happens by choice if you believe God's revelation. Um, and you call upon him, as I've been saying. And God chose to rule over Israel as a nation. And some proselyted in being Gentile, but, but not many. Then God birthed the church, Jew and Gentile one in Christ Jesus, as they believe the gospel and call upon his name. God will ultimately rule in the kingdom age, but he doesn't force anybody. It's always a choice whether you walk with God, whether you obey God or not. Now, his coming reveals itself in two ways. In fact, um, Jesus preached in the synagogue there in Nazareth in Luke 4, and he closed the book, as I said, only proclaiming the first coming, and he closed it right in the middle that went on to the second coming. And so he took the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1 and 2, and he stopped. Two different distincts coming. The first time he came, he came to die for the world, to call people to himself, the church. The second coming... He comes back with his church to judge the world. But God doesn't want to work through judgment. Isaiah says it's a strange way for God to work. He would much rather forgive than ever bring judgment. And yet God is always being accused of being this God of wrath. Even people say there's a God of wrath in the Old Testament. There's a different God of love in the New Testament. Really? Have you ever read Noah found grace in the eyes of God? If you're going to start the doctrine of grace, you don't start in the New Testament, you start in the Old. Because Noah and his sons and their wives all deserve judgment. But they believed the revelation of God. And the rest of the world was destroyed while they were saved through the flood. Because they believed God's word. Isaiah prophesied unto the throne 
upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. And so here again, the fulfillment is twofold often in the Old Testament, short-term, long-term. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16, the short-term was going to be the son of David, Solomon, who would sit upon the throne. But the long-term fulfillment and final fulfillment was through the seed of David, Jesus would be born. And he would sit upon his throne that would be forever. And so you have the short term as well as the long term. Paul uh, phrased it like this, born according to the seed of David after the flesh in Romans 1.3. The connection. You look at the genealogy of Mary and Joseph. They both were the line of David. One of them canceled out because of Jeconiah, but the other one was. But it doesn't matter because Joseph was not the father. Mary was the mother and the Holy Spirit was the father. So there's no violation at all through the prophecy that Jeconiah, none of his relatives would ever sit upon the throne. So you have two genealogies that prove both of them were uh, um, of the line of the throne. One is an ascension, the other was a dissension. And God's word just fits perfectly all together. Notice Isaiah prophesied to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. The kingdom will be a righteous one. Um, no injustice will take place. Uh, no one will argue about the consequences of the judgment. No one will be able to, uh, to say that Jesus made mistakes. He is the epitome of truth and holiness, and, and, and no one will say anything. While we're here on earth, many people have a big mouth, and they say many things about God or to God. But I guarantee you, when every man and woman stands before God, nobody's going to say anything. People have big mouths down here. Not in hell and not in heaven. Because it's reality. You see, there's a big difference. And it's for eternity. Not just for a little while. So true judgment due to the fact that he sees and knows all things. True justice for he has perfect wisdom there's no mistake possible. Notice Isaiah prophesied from that time forward and forever. So the time would be according to God's plan. Again, preparatory from the Old Testament and shadows and types and, and prophecies also. The New Testament is the fulfillment in Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son made of a woman under the law. Right on time. When the world was one under Rome, when the roads were all over for travel to spread the gospel, when there was one world language, Greek, right on time, the gospel went throughout the world. Today, the internet is a great thing for the gospel. Do you know how many people are hearing about the gospel as people are on the internet? communicating to people. Before, we had to send missionaries out all over the place, spend a lot of money. Today, there's so much evangelism going on just through the Internet all over the world. God uses it for His glory. At the same time, that technology is used for corruptness in many different ways. We live in a fallen world, not because God created but because we rebelled against God. And yet God continues to reach out to those with the gospel message. 
Notice Isaiah prophesied from that time forward, even forever. And so, the age of grace, after the age of grace is the great tribulation. After that, the kingdom age. After that, the eternal uh, kingdom with God. And so God is working through the time factor that he gave. Time came out of eternity, and and time will go back into eternity. After the uh, thousand-year reign, you have the eternal. So God created time the way you and I know it, chronologically, past, present, and future. God lives in an eternal present. And so he created time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and time began. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day, the seventh day. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planet revolving, the earth turning, the perfect distance, everything, the oceans to cool the planet, everything. Do you think that happened by accident? Do you think your body happened by accident? (laughs) You You ever seen the intricacy of an eye, what it does? Your heart? Your kidneys, your ear, (laughs) it's a closed system. Everything has to be present for it to function. You can't start with one piece and evolve into it. That takes more faith, but it's really not faith. It starts with the same letter. It's foolishness. It's much easier to believe that God created me after his likeness, after his image. That I might worship and praise him. But notice also in verse 7 here that Isaiah prophesied the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. The Lord of hosts means the captain of the armies of heaven. God would bring to pass the birth of Jesus conceived through the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.20. Luke tells us also. Jesus was perfect. He says, I do always those things that please the Father in John 8.29. None of us can say that. If we said that, people would laugh at us. Nebuchadnezzar declared this for all to know after he regained his sanity. He says, and at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised him and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. For he does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4, 34 and 35. He's in control. Now, though he's in control, he allows free will. That bothers us. You should thank him for your free will. Because when he judges you, he judges you according to your decision. If he judged you without giving you a choice, then he would be unjust. He gives you a choice to choose. So your judgment has no excuse if you reject Jesus Christ. Choice is necessary. In the midst of our chaotic world, God is in complete control on all that is going on. Yet he is not responsible for the evil, as I said. But evil cannot thwart the ultimate purposes or will of God. And yet he is not biting his nails, wondering if he's able to fulfill the prophecies and promises that he's given to us. He knows he can. 
There are so many in the world today that um, mock the coming again of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't change the fact that he is coming. He is coming. Second Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10 speaks about him coming to punish the ungodly. The preview of his second coming is given to you and I in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? He will have them in derision. He will laugh at them. And, he, and the psalm finishes, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. All of us were ex-Catholic. We know exactly what that means. You kiss your saint. You kiss your rosary. You kiss your virgin, whatever it is. You're dedicating yourself. You're bowing. You're honoring them. He says, you want to bow to somebody. You want to honor somebody. You want to worship somebody. You do it to the son, no one else. Wow. God is very, very narrow-minded, ladies and gentlemen. He's so narrow-minded that he signed it in blood. The blood of his son. The character of his kingdom is eternal as God. Right now we're just in the temporal aspect. But he's still on the throne. Notice thirdly there in 6, the nature of his office. Isaiah prophesied his name is called Wonderful. It means extraordinary or marvelous. He's the last Adam, the one to redeem fallen man, Romans 5.12. The one just like Adam, but without sin. Adam failed, brought in sin and death. The last Adam did not fail, but he redeemed us from sin and death. He would be meek and gentle, Matthew 11.29 tells us. He would be the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5. Go between the umpire to lay his hand on both of us, the negotiator, if you will. He would bring light to those who are darkness, give them hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew four sixteen, Isaiah nine two, that we see here. Notice Isaiah prophesied his name will be called counselor, which means advisor. Today, we're big on counselors, right? And yet people will go to shrinks and psychologists to counsel them, and yet many of them have messed up marriages, and they're giving counsel about marriage. How interesting. They've been divorced and married two, three, four times, and yet you're there for marriage, your first marriage. What does he have to teach you? Absolutely nothing. Yet Jesus is that great counselor. He's the one that gives us wisdom if you read the Proverbs. It speaks about the godly man, the ungodly man, the ungodly woman, the godly woman. The big difference. But again, godliness is between me and God, how I live. Righteousness is how I conduct myself between you and I on the horizontal level. Without godliness, without having a relationship with God, then it's impossible for me to be moral and ethical towards you. If I don't have a relationship with God, then I use my relationship to you for my advantage, for what's good for me, for what's beneficial for me. The only way I can live right is if I'm right with God. So Jesus is the faithful counselor. He tells us as it is. He says, Xavier, you need to repent. He told me this in 1973. Not because he hated me, but because he knew I was headed for hell. 
And I had a choice to believe him and repent or to walk away. Many of my friends walked away. I've buried several of them already. Others came to Christ, but few. And yet one of my best friends just came to Christ after 40 years of praying and visiting him. So, who have you given up on? (laughs) What if somebody would have given up on you? You know when you stop praying for people? When you die. That's when you stop praying. Unless God tells you directly, told Jeremiah three times, don't pray for these people no more. You never want to hear that from God. You never want to hear God tell you, don't pray for them anymore. Because that means it's too late. Isaiah prophet, his name is called Mighty God. Jesus is God, evident by his name, Yahweh Shua, the contraction of, uh, of Jehovah's salvation. Joshua is the name that the, of that contraction. Joshua is the Hebrew name of the Greek name Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh's salvation. And so Jesus is God evident from his perf- perfection and sinlessness. He was born without sin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He asked people, which of you convict me of sin? In John eight forty six. nobody ever took him up on it. No one. Hebrews seven twenty six tells us that he is undefiled, separate from sinners. He's become higher than the heavens. That is said of no man, only of Jesus. Jesus got evident from his declaration. Thomas called him, my Lord, my God, in John twenty twenty eight. Thomas said, unless I see his prince in, in, in the spirit, I won't, I won't believe it. Thomas, put your hand here. My Lord, my God. The centurion at the cross says, truly this man was the son of God in Mark fifteen thirty nine, He's called God by the Father. And that his throne is forever in Hebrews 1, 8. God the Father calls him God. Jesus, being God, is mighty. He created all things, Colossians 1.16. He destroyed him who had the power of death, Satan, in Hebrews 2.14. He defied the grave, Sheol. It couldn't hold him, Acts 2.24 tells us. And he raised himself from the dead, 1 Corinthians 1.9. The Father raised him from the dead. The Spirit raised him from the dead. All the three persons of the Trinity were involved. You can't separate them. Notice Isaiah prophesied every everlasting father. Father of eternity. The fatherhood of Jesus in view of the nature of his work of redemption and love. For he is distinct from the father. Even as your body is distinct from your soul and your soul is distinct from your spirit. The Old Testament distinction of the Godhead is developed um, very clearly and it's fully developed much clearer in the New Testament but clearly from Genesis to Revelation you have the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit the Father set the plan the Son was the channel and the agent is the Holy Spirit who is working on behalf of the Son he's a silent witness of Jesus he never speaks of himself he always speaks of Jesus 
He never adds to Jesus' word. He never takes away from his word. He only sheds light on his words completely. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You have seen me, has seen the Father in John 10, 30 and other passages. And so Jesus um, said to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. I, I say to you before Abraham was, I am, John eight fifty six and 58, I am back in the Old Testament. Over and over again, we find Jesus declared to be God himself. Very, very clearly. It isn't something sporadic. But notice Isaiah prophesied his name is called Prince of Peace. The angels sang at the shepherds field, as you know, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men in Luke 2.14. What an incredible night. Can you imagine being there? What an incredible, incredible night. To who did he reveal this to? Shepherds. The lowest of people in the country. Wow. Jesus told his disciple, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In Hebrews 14, or John 14, 27. So, Jesus is the one who gives us that peace. That peace that passes all understanding. Paul said, therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 5.1. It's the only way. We cannot be justified by works or anything else, only by the grace and the work of Jesus Christ. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments containing an ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two Jew and Gentile thus making peace, Ephesians 2.15. The hatred between the Gentile and the Jew was incredible. We think about the white and black today in the world. Let me tell you, do a little history between the Jew and the Gentile. It was horrific. And yet he made peace through them. You had a Jew sitting down. You had a Gentile sitting down. Both born again. They were brothers in Christ. They didn't let anybody divide them. If you're a believer, don't you let anybody divide you because of your race, because of your economic background, or because of anything else. You are one in Christ Jesus. If you've repented, you're my brother, you're my sister. Let no one divide you. Not a politician, not an educator, no one. You're one in Christ. A person described the loving way God meets his need this way. Beneath me, green pastures. Beside me, still waters. With me, my shepherd. Before me, a table. Around me, mine enemies. After me, goodness and mercy. Beyond me, the house of the Lord. And I can attest to you after 42 years of walking with the Lord, but a, but a blink of eye. That's how fast it's been. That God has been so good. I deserve absolutely nothing that I received. It's just the mercies of God. That's all it is, man. You and I can fellowship with one another. You and I can worship Jesus Christ in a country that is still free. You and I can proclaim the good news to others. 
that you and I can enter into a friendship and a fellowship that is far beyond our convenience and our own uh, selfishness and that we can be honorable and honest and upright with each other is an absolute miracle that only God can bring about. So Jesus is quite different. That young woman was there that night and the angel came upon her. Gabriel says, that which conceived with you is of the Holy Spirit. That's how it's going to be possible. How can this be possible? Because the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Joseph's concerned. Gabriel visits him. He says, get back, Joseph. Don't freak out. This is of the Lord. Mary, Mary. Take care of her. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. What would you have done, gentlemen? Would you have believed that your virgin engaged bride-to-be, found pregnant, was conceived of the Holy Spirit? Would you have been as righteous as Joseph? Or would you have taken the way out? Wow. I probably would have taken the way out. That's how bad I am. Thank God for Joseph. (laughs) Maybe you're here tonight, you've never accepted Christ. Isaiah has laid bare the Messiah. Your Lord and Savior, if you choose him to be so. Right now, he's just your God who created you. But what a greater gift can you give to the Lord than your heart? That he forgive you, that he give you a new heart, a new spirit, a new mind, a new hope. It's not going to be pie in the sky. In fact, I can guarantee you that if you decide to be born again, you probably have uh, more difficulties to start with than solutions. Because uh, now your light and everything around you that you've lived around is darkness. And you can't live the way you used to. But he will enable you. He will empower you. He will guide you. He will direct you. He will not leave you. He will be so faithful. As you get into the word of God, as you pray, as you fellowship, as you grow, as you walk with him. You'll never have any complaints against him. (laughs) I guarantee you. And so the nature of his office is to meet all our needs by the love of God. Here's Isaiah's message. These three things. The mystery of his birth is revealed by God. The character of his kingdom is eternal as God. And the nature of his office is to meet all our needs by the love of God. He has no agenda. He has nothing to gain from you or I. Absolutely nothing. God's love gives. He never takes. He doesn't need to. Lord, we worship you. We thank you for tonight. We pray you just deal with our hearts and minister unto us, Lord, that in all things you may be honored.
We pray for those that are here and those that are over the internet. And Lord, you would um, speak to their hearts if they don't know you. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if God has spoken to you, you can call on his name right now. It's called repentance. Making a bow face as you call upon him. As you ask him to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life. That he become your Lord and your Savior. If this is your decision, right where you sit, this prayer is your prayer to him, not to us. And he's going to save you right now. Absolutely save you from all your sins. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.